So welcome to the uh, Wednesday night doldrums. As you can see, uh, it's kind of the time of year that we hit the vacations and the semi-snowbirds. Um, so feel free later to uh, unite some of your groups together if you so choose uh, later this evening uh, during our discussion time. But And uh, obviously... Some people are, I think some people just burrowed into their basements when they heard the news on Monday. They're going to wake up tomorrow and be like, oh. must have been someplace else. Different Niswa. I got to tell you a quick funny story. Nikki and I were, uh, it was when we were heading to Atlanta for a market, and we were discussing about going to Savannah, Georgia for uh, the day, and so her and I kept looking at the weather, and I was like, oh, it's going to be like 80 degrees. This is going to be awesome. And she's, she's like, no. Mine says like 60. I'm like, well, mine says 80, so I'm going to stick with this one. Every day I was like, oh, it's going to be amazing. And then I looked, and I was like, oh, wrong Savannah. <laughs> it's like Savannah, Louisiana or someplace. I'm like, mm, okay, well, I guess it's 60. So, people may think different Niswa. All right, let's pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into chapter 16. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come tonight on this first uh, day of the Lenten season of this year, and we just uh, thank you for this time of remembering and reminding us of who you are and an enhanced level of focus, hopefully, on you and uh, a focused time of seeking to grow in our understanding of you and grow in our relationship and intimacy with you. And so we just pray that, that tonight would be a part of that. And as we, as we go through the next six weeks of Lent, that we would seek to carve out time each, each day uh, with great intent to love you and to honor you and to, to just spend time with you and be in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, we are in chapter 16, and I'm going to, um, as I know how this goes, I'm going to wait about five minutes, and then I'm going to say my announcement so that everyone gets, gets the announcement. So chapter 16, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, uh, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When, it is, when it, it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves of, uh, for the fourth five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon, replied, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be, shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or what shall a person give in return for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of, of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what they have done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right. See, just look just like that, more people. Um, so speaking of Lent, this is the Lent booklet uh, for this year. We started this last year uh, as a trial thing. I think it went okay, or at least went better than okay. That's why we're doing it again. Uh, if you want one of these, uh, there's some on the back table where the questions were, and then there's some at the information desk. Uh, it is a daily uh, guidance thing of various spiritual disciplines. Each day of the week is the same. You're like, yeah, Monday, Tuesday. Yeah, I understand. Uh, every Monday's the same. Every Tuesday, well, slightly the same. Every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So it's somewhat predictable, yet it's not completely predictable. So I encourage you to grab one of these and walk through this. Um, if you're going to grab this and feel bad about it, please don't grab one. As you grab it, say, I'm grabbing this to grow in Christ, and if I do not do it, I will not feel bad about it. Okay? Don't let this become a weapon to beat yourself up with. All right. Back to the, back to the book. So, uh, as we were going last week, uh, there was this interesting feeding of the 4,000s. And then uh, Jesus, we get this reference that he is finishing up in the region of Magadan. And I have this... Uh, this idea that I would like to see, and I was doing some, uh, some research on the internet today, 
I would love to see an actual vis visual representation of Matthew's trajectory of Jesus as he walks through uh, the gospel so that we can see where is he going at different times and what's happening in those various places. There's a lot of maps that have points on them that reference various uh, things. You know, it might say this was where he fed the 5,000, but I want to see actual lines. And so maybe this summer I'll, I'll try and put something like that together. But to give us a bit of reference, you know, the Sea of Galilee has kind of been the home base or the area that he's been around the most. Megadon is uh, on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. That's where this exists. So remember last week, Tyre and Sidon is this region, it's also cities, way up north um, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. Magadon is on the Sea of Galilee. And then when we see in verse 13 him going up to Caesarea Philippi, it's 28 miles straight north up the river um, to a different location. Each one of these places is important for us to be aware of because uh, Matthew wants us to, to know what, where he's at. So he's in this region on the northwest corner of the sea, and we see this introduction of the, both the Pharisees and Sadducees coming together, uh, which is a, a unique thing. They're not exactly good buddies, but they're deciding to team up against Jesus. And notice we see something very familiar to what we've already seen uh, in the past. They're asking for this idea of a sign from heaven. Now, if you remember back when, when they made this, when this request was before, we're making a distinction between uh, a miracle and a cosmic sign. So they aren't looking for miracles. They're looking for something grandiose and cosmically, like up, visually up in the air. Like maybe think about, you know, the stars of Beth, the star of Bethlehem. Like, yeah, you missed that. We already had that. And so they want this big visual uh, shift to happen. And Jesus' response is very interesting. And one thing that you might not be aware of is many idioms that we have or sayings that we have are biblical. Here is one of them. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. You're familiar with this, all you nautical folks, all the times you've been out you know, navigating the seas of Gull Lake, trying to figure out what it's going to be like tomorrow. Uh, so that's a biblical thing. And Jesus is saying, you, you say that you want this thing, but you don't actually want this thing. Uh, because you see these signs, and yet you don't really get it. And notice again, he makes this reference to the sign of Jonah in this passing sign. And if you missed... Um, that grand discussion, I encourage you to go back to 12 and, and revisit um, the importance of the sign of Jonah. But Jesus, in essence, just brushes them off. But in him, in him brushing them off, he's just fur, further fueling their fire against him. So he brushes them off and they go to the other side where they have this uh, interesting discussion. And Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, remember back a few weeks ago, when leaven was introduced, it was what? 
Yeast, yes, yes. And, and what, what, was the represent, what was the yeast representing? No. It was so shocking for us that Jesus had taken this thing and used it as a positive illustration. Thank you, yes. This idea of just a little bit of faith and how it continues to grow, you know, is the whole idea of the seed, tiny little seed growing. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder why I say things multiple times and then I'm reminded because sometimes the first time we hear it, we don't, are not even listening. So we just keep saying the same thing over and over again. I actually thought about next year, we're just going to do Matthew again. <laughs> so what? Fine? Okay. We'll just, we'll just do Matthew again. We'll just walk through the whole thing again. I'll throw all my notes away and we'll just start fresh and we'll see what happens. Yes. Yes, and also the leaven, that the woman divides, you know, into the, the kingdom of God is like this leaven that grows and develops. It was both. Yes. Both. Yes. It's a both and, the, this idea of multiplication out of a small amount. So here it's a bad thing. The leaven is a bad thing. The yeast of the Pharisees is a bad thing, which is predictable for us. But notice, what are the disciples concerned about? They need a Snickers. They're hungry. And we all know what happens when we're hungry. We're not thinking clearly. And what's interesting is, you know, as we've talked about this theme of food throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses this as a continuing theme to draw the reader's attention towards this idea of the provision of God. So the two feeding scenarios that we had, the two feeding miracles, there is this abundance. And uh, Craig Blomberg, in his commentary, uses this phrase, superabundance. And so how when, when Jesus is providing, he's not just providing the, the most minuscule amount, he is providing a super abundance. And so the disciples, even after receiving this super abundance, they have this challenge of, but we don't have anything to eat. In essence, they can't even hear what Jesus is saying because all they're concerned about is their own stomachs. And what are we going to eat for dinner? Which is, I mean, I can relate I can relate. There have been times when I have been out of my mind because I have needed some food. And I'm sure I'm the only one. So I'll live with that on my own. But notice something that Jesus does here. And I, this is something that struck me today, and I, and I want us to really think about it. And I want us to do a little, a little uh, exercise. Okay? So... If you were playing Jesus, you know, everyone in the church play wants to be Jesus. If you're playing Jesus, and this, it gets to this point in the story, and you have to deliver this line to the disciples, okay? 
And we're all going to do this together, even those people that are sitting at home. We're going to say out loud and in the tone of voice that we hear Jesus saying these words to the disciples. So I'm going to count to three. And on three, we're going to say out loud, we're going to read, okay, we're at play practice, and I'm the director. You're going to deliver your Jesus line. And the tone, have I explained this well enough? So you're going to deliver the Jesus line. It's one sentence. And I'm going to say it first in the most monotone way that I can, so not to influence your character, Jesus. Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Okay? You, you all feel like, what's my motivation? Okay, mm, I've got it. La, 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 la. On three, you're going to all say it out loud in your tone of voice as if you are Jesus. One, two, three. Exactly. Yeah, that was correct. You get the part. My paraphrase is, what are you even talking about? How stupid can you be? Have you not been paying attention? No, I don't think I did. I don't think that, I don't think I did. So what's interesting is, Notice when we, when we hear these words, when we're reading these words to ourselves, we put different tone into Jesus' mouth. And the tone that we put into Jesus' mouth is far more based on how we view God, the inherited picture of God that we have lived into that at times is, is inappropriate and or wrong. Because why, and, and we didn't all come to the same, same place, okay? We, I'm not saying that we all did. For me, when I hear this, it is a very critical, I cannot believe after all this time we've spent together, you still can't Figure it out. Why are you so dumb? That's what I hear. That's not a really good Jesus. And for some of us, we're like, yep, that's exactly it. That's who Jesus is. Super critical, hard on the disciples. It's like, and I just, the Holy Spirit today was like, Eric, what if this was the parent who, who's just, feels for their children. Like, oh, man. Ah. This is really hard for you. And I know you've seen a lot of stuff, but you're still learning. That's okay. Do you still need some more time because you haven't yet fully grasped it? That's a different tone. That's like, yeah, Jesus, I don't get it. 
versus the hypercritical Jesus is like, seriously, you need more time? How many more miracles do I need to do in order for you to understand who I am? And so I want to, I, I want to point that out because for me it was just like this zinging revelation of why do I hear Jesus being critical? Well, frankly, because I'm very critical of myself. And so we can read into the story something that shouldn't be there. You know, you've, you've maybe heard this phrase, you know, the God of our own creation, the God of our own imagination. How often is it that, that Jesus is this creation of who we want him to be? And so then, then all of our biases comes through in how we read his words. You know, and then he talks about the superabundance. Like, yes, you're hungry, and yes, I will provide. I have been providing, and I will continue to provide in an overwhelming amount. At this point, I really need you to be wary of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because what they're doing even in a very small dose, can infect what is happening in your life. <laughs> and we know this so, so well. I mean, it does not take a lot of yeast to infect a clean batch of bread. <laughs> Likewise, it doesn't take a lot of yeast of a false teacher to implant into our brains and start to grow and develop into something. And Jesus is warning the disciples that as they go, they need to be aware of this. And now notice, notice this section because it is so fascinating. And how often is it that we cut this up again and we miss out on this interwoven connectedness? Now, when Jesus came into the district, okay, so they have this experience. It comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi, which is, again, 25 to 28 miles north. You know, it's like, all right, so we're just going to go ahead and we're going to walk down to Little Falls. Or I suppose the other direction. 28 miles north of here would be Hackensack, more or less. Don't worry, we'll stop at the corner store and have breakfast. <laughs> It'll be worth it. Um... What has happened? Like, they've been walking for 28 days, and Matthew gives us none of it. Don't you want to know? You're like, you jump from this teaching, and 28 miles later, did I say 28 days? 28 miles later, they're in Caesarea Philippi, and they have this huge thing. And Jesus asks them. Now, more than likely, they've gone up to uh, find space from the, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, this trio of John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah, we've seen John the Baptist and Elijah before, and we're going to see them next week. So that's pretty cool. Notice, John the Baptist and Elijah, I'm sorry, we don't see John the Baptist next week. We see Moses and Elijah on the, in the Transfiguration. But John the Baptist and Elijah are these key characters that we've seen coming back uh, again and again. 
And Jesus asks Matthew the most, asks the group the most important thing. Who do you say that I am? And again, we see this two-word phrase that for a Jew would stick out so prominently. But have you ever thought about that question yourself? Like, if you were to answer the question, who is Jesus? What would you, how would you answer that question? Because it's something of utmost importance for Jesus to ask those that are going to be following him. Because the answer to that question shapes so many things. And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Again, we, we so often put Jesus, we put Christ as Jesus' last name, and Matthew here, or Peter here is saying, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, for a Jew to declare that someone is the Messiah has a whole large package of information with it. The Messiah for the Jews is the person they've been waiting for to bring about their restoration and their flourishing in a very worldly, power-driven way. Going to fight against the Romans, going to take back their authority, going to take back the promised land, and going to do all these things for them from a very politically uh, human power-motivated way. So when, G- when, Ma- when Peter says this, when he says that you're the Messiah, he's, he has a whole big set of beliefs in his head about what the Messiah is supposed to be. And Jesus praises him for that. And he says, uh, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Which brings up this very interesting thing as we talk about this concept of general revelation, special revelation, which we've talked about before, but we're not going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about this reality. Jesus is saying, Because of this declaration, on this, there becomes great conversation. On this rock, is Peter the rock, or is his declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, is that the rock? That becomes a very interesting uh, conversation for us to have if we had time. If the world wasn't ending tonight via snowstorm, we all needed to get home and hunker down, buy more eggs if we can afford them. What's the most important thing here is the gates of hell or the the power of death shall not prevail against it. And how often is it that we get hung up in the weeds of debating what does he mean by Peter being the rock and all of this stuff and and then then we can be distracted in talking about the whole Catholic mindset of the Pope and, you know, the, the Peter is the first Pope and all these things. What is of utmost importance here is Jesus' declaration that when this community of faith, this is the first time the church is ever, the word church is ever used, I am going to construct my community of faith on this reality and nothing is going to prevail against it. That's what we should be really focusing on. And I know John has said it many, many times, 
This is not our church. This is not my church. This is not John's church. This is Christ's church. And even as we talk about the church, the church as a global reality, nothing is going to prevail against over against the church. And yet how often is it that we get so spun up that we have to fight. We got to fight for the church. We got to we got to fight 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 fight. Cuz if we don't fight something's going to happen to the church. Except that is not even anywhere close to what Jesus said. Jesus, in his declaration about the establishment, and again, for them to hear this word, it doesn't even make sense to them. There is no such thing as church. For them, there's temple, period. There's no church. For us today, we think, oh, well, yeah, of course, church. You know, it's when we get together on Sunday morning and So he is making this prophetic declaration about this community of believers that are going to be established, that will be called the church, that will never be defeated. No ifs, ands, buts. He doesn't tell them that they need to fight extra hard. You know, when culture rises up and seeks to to weaken the church, or, you know, we got to fight for, for our for our religious liberty or what's going to happen. That, that's just not a part of what Jesus is saying. And what's interesting is he continues to go further. And he says, do not tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. And why is that? Because all these other people have the same idea that he, what the Messiah will do. That's why when we fast forward to the entry into Jerusalem that we'll get to in a few weeks, they think he's the Messiah, meaning he's going to ride in and take over. So like the whole palm branches and triumphal entry thing is misguided. And I think that's partly why Jesus cries over the city but we'll get to that when we get to it. So Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah, but what I am establishing, you don't fully understand. Because right here he says, Matthew says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So, now one thing we want to be aware of is, okay, he was down at the Sea of Galilee, and he's gone straight north, and then he's going to go a little bit further north and to the east for the uh, transfiguration. And then once he makes his turn and sets his face, that's the phrase, sets his face towards Jerusalem, that's important. And Jesus knows it's coming. That's what he says right here. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. So if we grew up believing that the Messiah was going to be, was going to come and going to, yes, you have a question? Oh, did I miss that part? So the, the, the statement uh, first was about verse uh, 19. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the question was, is that just for the disciples, or is that for the church at, in lar- at large? Right, that's what I mean. The, the, church, the, the church from then on forward, meaning us today. Um. Because I didn't really want to focus on that tonight, I intentionally skipped it. <laughs> because we only have so much time and I really want to focus on this next part. Um, I think that is, that is one of the most wonderful questions to ask and to wrestle with. And the, where I am drawn towards within the, the uh, intellectual, academic conclusion is he is telling the disciples this like Peter and, and the, the immediate disciples when what you do is of utmost importance this is not like and it's going to continue to anyone else who is a part of this church so that's where I would prefer to go there's great great discussion around what does this actually mean and not a real clear conclusion around what it means. Because it's interesting, as we go forward and the disciples are unable to cast out the demons, <laughs> it's like, well, I thought you said we were going to be able to basically do all these things and now we can't do any of them. Um, so. so notice this. If you grew up for for not only your whole life, but generations believing that the Messiah was going to come about. And when the Messiah comes, Israel will be fully restored to its power and prestige and get all of its place back and all of these amazing things. It's a little, you know, the promised land and and everything's going to be great again. Like, we're just, it's a little bit like, uh, it's a little bit like the Vikings. They're like, if we could just get a quarterback, then we will win the Super Bowl. Like we just draft the right person and then, and then, except that doesn't seem to happen. And then Jesus says, yes, you are right. I am the Messiah. Except your view, the disciples' view of the Messiah, doesn't get killed. So imagine hearing that. Jesus says, you're right. I'm the Messiah. And they're like, whoa, the crowd goes wild. They can't wait. Like, we're going to get to be in power and all these things. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and be killed. Wait, what? Excuse me. No, not a chance. No. 
And, and I, I think of it in this way. You, you ever hear something in a, in a longer sentence and it's so shocking that you literally hear nothing else? And, and, and all the people that are certainly ever been in a relationship are familiar with this. Like, I heard the first part, but I basically tuned out because what you said at the beginning was so shocking to me that I stopped listening. <laughs> like, well, he says he's going to be raised again as if that's normal. <laughs> like, that isn't normal. You're not like, oh, okay, that's cool then. Like, who just raised, gets raised from the dead? First of all, you're saying the Messiah is going to be killed. That doesn't make sense. Then you're saying you're going to be raised from the dead. Again, doesn't make sense. This can't possibly be. And what happens? Peter is like, excuse me, no. Far be it. Well, at least he took him to the side. <laughs> Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter is like, no, you're the Messiah. You can't die. You can't die. And I know we've been having this conversation around as we view the disciples, you know, we, we can have this overinflated view of the disciples or we can have this very underinflated view of the disciples and we can be like, how can they not get it? Except if we would have lived as Peter lived for all these years, believing what the Messiah would be, and then, then finally getting the answer correct, yes! And like, okay, whoa, <laughs> no, 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 this is not going to happen. And it's fascinating because he is rebuked. But notice what Peter keeps doing. Peter keeps taking risks. Peter keeps sticking his neck out and, and trying to take risks. Remember the, last, uh, the other week when we were talking about him stepping out of the boat? He's like, I'm going to try all these things, and I'm probably going to screw up, but I'm just going to keep trying. There's 11 other individuals there who are unwilling to take a risk. And so, woe to us as the reader who's like, well, Peter, ridiculous. How could he even think that? No, no. The other 11 were probably thinking it. They just didn't have the courage to say it. And it's interesting because we can have this mindset around people who take risks as like, well, pfft ridiculous. And yet Matthew keeps telling us about how Peter puts himself forward and Jesus is honoring Peter's risk-taking ability when it comes to faith and understanding who Jesus is. And many of you are probably thinking, yes, Eric, because you're a risk-taker. You're not risk-averse. Two words that have never been put in the sentence with your name behind it. What does it look like to take these risks and to continually push forward even if we're going to make a mistake? And notice the grace that Jesus has for Peter. He doesn't, he doesn't cast him aside. He doesn't say, okay, you've, you've 
You've lost your chances. He is very direct, but at the same time, I'm sorry, he's very direct, and at the same time, he is comforting and consoling of him. And the direct is, you are Satan. (laughs) Doesn't get much more direct than that. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not seek. seek, uh, I'm sorry, I I just haven't admitted yet that I can't read the Bible with these glasses on. Someday I'll come to that consensus. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of human beings. Remember when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness? Jesus, or at least Matthew gives us this picture in the words of Jesus, that he sees these words of Peter as a similar temptation. A temptation to not experience the pain that is waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he makes this stark contrast between the mind of the world and the mind of God. And notice what the difference is in this particular instance. The mind of the world wants the Messiah to be a particular way. And that way is authoritative, militarily powerful, governmentally powerful, and overrunning other people. That is the mind of the world that Peter is speaking about. And what is Jesus' response to that mind? That is from Satan. The mind of God is the exact opposite of that. This is so hard. And and again, when we talk about the leaven of the Pharisees and this temptation that we have to be drawn towards this vision of what it means to be in this world and what it means to have the mind of Christ. And Jesus faces it down right here in this point in the gospel And he says, that is the mind of Satan. Like, How much more direct could he be? The kingdom of God is not about worldly power and authority and influence. That is the mind of Satan. And that is just so hard to wrap our minds around. Because then we hear... Well, we have to have power and we have to have authority because if we don't, then, then, then all these things and that little bit of leaven gets planted in us and it starts to grow and develop and fester. And yet when Jesus sees it here in Peter, he rebukes, rebukes it as satanic. <laughs> and I know you're like, that's, that's strong. Yeah, it's strong, 
and it's in the Bible. And how often is it the case that we, on a daily basis, are encountered with this in our own brains? Where we want to do this thing because the world says that we should do this thing, but it's of the world, which is of Satan, when we should be over here focusing on the mind of Christ, which is the opposite. And now notice, because every other time we see this bifurcated by this stupid heading. Because Jesus doubles down. Because if we just end there, we don't see what Matthew is doing or what Jesus is doing in Matthew's gospel by doubling down. Right after he rebukes Peter for for having this mindset, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And so we see this beautiful picture of Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, it looks like carrying a cross. It looks like getting away from this mind of the world and into this mind of Christ. But so often we separate those two things and we see them as as similar but completely different when in actuality they must go and dovetail together. Because to carry our crosses is to crucify the mindset of the world and to embody the mindset of Christ. And Michael Gorman has this huge book called Cruciformity, and it's all about that. To be a disciple is to have a a cross-shaped life. And Jesus is saying here in this very moment, the world is going to lead you to believe that this is, what, this is how it should function. However, my kingdom looks exactly the opposite of that. Now the challenge for us, for some of us, for me, I'll just, let's just stick with me, is when we read this and then we take this idea of living, you know, carrying our crosses, it becomes this well, I need to live an ascetic lifestyle and I don't deserve anything and I'm not worth anything because I just deny all my desires and wants and all of these things and I just live my life on the cross. Poor me, not, I can never have anything. All these like, every day I just have to, you know, beat myself up. That's taking this too far. (laughs) And I know because I've taken this that far. And it is not what I think Jesus is trying to communicate. What I think he's trying to communicate is we cannot... You ever find yourself, uh, in particular, like if you ever go to the grocery store and you're like, I'm going to take all this stuff in in one trip. And then you get all these things, and then you're like, oh, and then there's the gallon of milk. And you're like, ah, I can't carry all these bags and the milk at the same time. I have to make a choice. Am I going to come back for the milk? Is it going to be, is it going to freeze tonight? You ever do that? It'll be fine if it freezes just a little bit. I'm just going to leave it. Jesus is saying, 
we cannot both carry the world and carry our cross at the same time. The cross is the kingdom of God, and it's not the world. And so we cannot both carry the world and the things of this world and carry the cross at the same time. And so we have a choice to make. Do we carry our crosses, or do we carry the other things of the world that we desire to carry? And he brings back these images of the, the previous uh, parables that he's been telling. You know, what does it profit? You know, thinking about the pearl of great price and all these things and, and the fact that the kingdom of God carrying the cross is worth more than anything that the world has to offer. Anything that the world has to offer. And then we get this very interesting phrase at the end. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we get to have this curious moment of, wait, how is that even possible? How is that even possible? Because we, we know what happens. We know what happens. So we'll talk about that after our discussion groups. Uh, you're probably going to want to get, uh, yeah, based on what we see here, you're probably going to want to group up a little bit so it's not like two-person discussion. <laughs>